Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Welcome to episode 109 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from December 2nd, 2015, titled, You Can't Force Anyone to Change Their Minds or Actions. As I've worked with hospitals and healthcare people over the past 10 years, one personal benefit to me has been exposure to new ideas and new influences. As an engineer with an MBA, my reading and learning tended to be focused on books about lean, systems thinking, and leadership. And you know, I've been exposed to ideas also, and, and sometimes surprisingly, from the social sciences, ideas that have been thought-provoking and really helpful. You know, I find it interesting that some of my favorite lean authors, such as Jeffrey Liker, who has a PhD in sociology, and David Mann, who has a PhD in psychology, uh, come from social science backgrounds instead of engineering. Now, I mean, no disrespect to engineers, of course. I'm just saying we benefit from a diversity of perspectives in the lean community, and that includes the perspectives of nurses and others who work in this field. And I've said many times, really only half-jokingly, that if I were to ever get another formal degree, that it would be in counseling or family therapy, even if I didn't go work directly in that field. So a few years back, a lab director at a hospital, he had retired from a career in military medicine, which is another example of diversity. He introduced me to the idea of what's called family systems theory. Now, even with the word family in there, uh, many concepts were very applicable to the workplace. And this included what they call triangles or you know, encouraging people to deal directly with each other instead of bringing a third party into some sort of conflict or disagreement. Another helpful concept is the idea of overfunctioning and underfunctioning, where a manager might give answers to their employees, which is an example of overfunctioning, which only reinforces to the employees that they need to just be quiet and follow orders, which would be their underfunctioning. And this leads to a downward spiral of one behavior overfunctioning, reinforcing the other underfunctioning over time, and so on and so on. Telling people what to do might seem efficient in the short term, but it really undercuts people's ability to improve in the long term. The proper Kaizen coaching, talking about continuous improvement, helps break those cycles as managers step back from giving answers and they ask employees to speak up and try out ideas themselves. It's a tough cycle to break though. So when I was at the recent, back in November, Lean Startup Conference, Somebody I know somewhat randomly introduced me to another attendee. And as we chatted, I learned her background was social work. And she was the founder of a technology startup that solves a problem that was important to her and her work. Now, I never met people like that when I worked in manufacturing. Now, again, I've really grown to appreciate the perspectives and experiences of those who have different educational backgrounds than my own. Now, we were talking about healthcare, continuous improvement, and, and such topics. And she suggested I looked into a framework called Motivational Interviewing, or MI, as something that might be helpful in my lean coaching. Well, I took her recommendation, and by the time I was on my flight home, thanks to, to Kindle books, I was reading a free sample of what she recommended as the seminal book on this approach, titled Motivational Interviewing, Helping People Change, um, the third edition. The book gives a layman's definition of MI as, quote, Motivational interviewing is a collaborative conversation style for strengthening a person's own motivation and commitment to change. Well, I was, I was instantly hooked. You know, I tried to help people change in a number of ways. 
And while MI was developed as a more effective way to help people um, with addictions, fighting their addictions, I think this really applies to the workplace. I mean, people might be in a way addicted to old management behaviors or they might have a real uh, ambivalence to change. And that, and that term ambivalence has a very specific meaning uh, in uh, this approach. When people are ambivalent, they can see reasons to change, you know, why they should adopt lean practices, for example. But then people also talk themselves out of it. They might be afraid or there's some personal positives that come with the old approach that they're sticking to. So therefore, they're ambivalent. Um, as it says in the book, ambivalence is simultaneously wanting and not wanting something or wanting both of two incompatible things. So a number of things jumped out at me uh, from the first couple chapters of the book. MI recommends a style called guiding. You know, being directive with people doesn't work in therapy or as I've seen in our lean efforts. When being directive, we fall into what's called the expert trap and uh, our quote unquote writing reflex kicks in. We want to help write others and we, and we tend to think we have answers. So instead of being helpful, uh, that all causes defensiveness and, and leads to other barriers to change. The writing reflex, as the book points out, is usually well-intended. You know, we want to help others and we feel like we're helping them by giving them answers or telling them what to do. But MI is about helping people articulate their need for change and to discover their own path. And I think you know, this next bit will remind you of the Toyota Kata approach. If you're familiar with it, it says, quote, the path out of ambivalence is to choose a direction and follow it to keep moving in the chosen direction, end of quote. So I guess Toyota Kata would also include a series of experiments or tests of change that would hopefully move us in that direction. You know, a therapist can't give an addict a specific playbook of steps and answers any more than a Toyota Kata coach could. So the co-author of the MI book, uh, Rolnick, wrote, quote, I realized with some shock that the personal and professional incl inclination to blame, judge, and label others for being resistant and not motivated was not confined to the addiction field. It popped up in just about every care setting I came across. MI provided a different way of approaching these conversations about change, end of quote. So when a coach tries to tell people what to do, and I, I've been guilty of this, we breed resistance, again from the book, quote, argue for one side and the ambivalent person is likely to take up and defend the opposite. This sometimes gets labeled as denial or resistance or being oppositional. But there's nothing pathological about such responses. It is the normal nature of ambivalence and debate, end of quote. So again, this is interesting, that this sort of resistance is normal. And that's a big insight for me. You know, telling people what to do leads to the coachee feeling, quote, angry, defensive, uncomfortable, powerless, end of quote. Shaming people about their bad behavior doesn't lead to personal change either, a key lesson I need to keep in mind. So I'll share one last quote from the book, um, the philosopher Blaise Pascal. People are generally better persuaded by the reasons which they have themselves discovered than by those which have come into the mind of others. So I think that's really powerful stuff. You know, there's a lot more to motivational interviewing than merely, you know, leading by asking questions. And I'll, I'll be sharing more uh, from this book and my reflections over time. If you'd like to see a link to the book, 
links to the different terms uh, that are defined um, or mentioned here in the blog post, you can go uh, to the blog post for this episode, leanblog.org audio 109.